invite you to turn this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. May the Lord give us the impossible victory over our sin and break its chains in our lives. Christ in us, the hope of glory, may manifest Himself more and more through us that we would be holy as He is holy and show the world the light and the power of a life redeemed by Christ. We are going through a series, a topical series, fairly short one, I, not be much more than, I think, 15 in total messages, but uh, we are dealing with lives well lived. That's the overarching theme, lives well lived. And we've looked at a number of well-known characters, some you would expect me to deal with, and we're coming this morning perhaps to one that you may not have first considered, and that is Hannah. So we want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm deliberately dealing with Hannah rather than Samuel, because it has an application that I think the Lord would have us underline as we think of living a life for His glory. So, Let's hear the word of the Lord, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and reading from verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions But unto Hannah he gave a worthy or a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Eli, the priest, sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, And there shall no razor come upon his head. 
And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. That Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 18 as the introduction to what we're dealing with here this morning. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again for his help. Lord, be with us in these moments as we consider thy word. Give power, give help, give the Holy Spirit. Let there be an alertness, an ease with which to receive the engrafted word that is able to save the soul. And may Christ stand in our midst, immediate blessings to every waiting heart. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 500 years ago, the world witnessed one of the greatest spiritual awakenings or revivals that the Christian church in any age and in any place has experienced. The Bible, during that time of what we call the Protestant Reformation, was, was read, it was spread, it was taken from nation to nation, and as a result, things changed. Education changed. Politics changed, economics changed, church life changed, and family life changed. The Bible was the factor in all of this. It took root in hearts, in lives. It took root in communities. And how those lives were lived within those communities began to be transformed. And so the very fabric of communities and nations was altered. But one of the mistakes that we can make as we look back at that event or any event, even the events of Scripture, one of the mistakes we make is to, is to believe that such change, such transformation, such revivals require first and foremost big personalities, great gifts, and powerful positions. What we often forget about is who's behind these individuals? Who are the ones, the unknowns, shaping the lives of those that may shape communities and nations? Often, they are mothers, they're fathers, they're ordinary people living out their lives faithfully to the Lord. The key to influencing the world is not always having a position of prestige and renown. Sometimes it's as simple as what you find in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul writes, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, 
guide the house. That's all. It's not extraordinary. It's not grand. Seems so mundane. I will, therefore, that the younger woman marry, bear children, guide the house. Kingdom living. Transforming the world. Of course, that's not the only way. There are other mundane things, other mundane ways of living where we may influence, but I just took that text as an example I think that you can understand. Today we are going to look at another life well lived, and she represents the unsung heroes. The ordinary. Yeah, even those that bear their afflictions amidst the the ordinary circumstances of their lives, the people that seem to be overlooked. In fact, some that may even appear to be under a certain judgment that others analyze and say, God's favor is not upon you, when it is quite the opposite. We have in Hannah a woman who had a vision for the kingdom of God. And so that's how I've entitled it, Hannah, She Who Prayed with a Vision for God. And I want to say to you, beloved, as ordinary as you feel yourself to be, I want you to relate to this very ordinary woman. She's in the Scriptures, and she's not insignificant. But if we were recording history, we might not think about adding Hannah in. I wonder just how many Hannahs are behind the scenes in the details even of Scripture that the Spirit hasn't drawn attention to and yet have played their part in shaping lives. So let's think about Hannah. May the Lord bless our meditation this morning, and I I trust it really encourages us to think about this because, you know, a few of us are going to be Samson, and we're not going to be Abraham, and we're not maybe going to be Enoch and all these other characters, and we'll look at David and other great and grand personalities. I think we can identify with Hannah. As I say, that's the reason. I I want us to look at Hannah rather than, say, Samuel, because Samuel, the lessons from Samuel can be drawn from all sorts of other lives that we will look at. But Hannah, Hannah is easy to overlook. So maybe not this, this morning. Let's think, first of all, then, the context of our prayer, the context of our prayer. And I want to see a number of things here. First, life in the nation life in the nation. What was the experience of Hannah? What, what was her life like in terms of the time and the stage in which she is living in Israel's history? Well, it is, of course, the time of the judges. You think back again, Gideon, Samson, those two characters we've already looked at. She's living in that period. But just in one generation, that period will go away and it will make way then for a, a, a transition from the judges to the period of the kings. That's all in the very near future. Israel will seek for a king to lead them rather than for a judge. And spiritually, it's a dark time. It's not a good time. It's a dark time. In fact, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, it gives you a little insight into the darkness of the time. The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. So he's a child. Just, this is just a few years, therefore, from, from the beginnings of this book. Uh, from her prayer at least. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. What does that mean? In other words, it, it, was, it was rare. 
there, were, there, were, there were, was not, it was an experience of very few who know God, are walking with God, and giving to that generation an understanding of the mind of God. It was a famine for the Word, a famine for faithful preachers. Even Eli, who, who knew the Lord, he himself is, is at fault. He himself is not bringing that light to the souls of men. And his sons, well, as we will see, they're rascals indeed. There was no publicly recognized prophet, someone the people could consult where they might learn the will of God in a dark day. They were in that darkness without someone sounding forth the word of life, bringing light to the soul. Sound familiar? <laughs> in some ways, it was darker than today. There's still some faithful men today, thank God. I trust that we will be found among them, even though our influence may not be as broad. But this is the day in which they live. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were, were wicked men, as I've already indicated. If you go to chapter 2 and look at verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, we're told the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. That's the overarching statement. Here, are the, 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 the son of the priest, the sons of the priest do not know God. Verse 13, the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he stuck, struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, "'Give flesh to the roast for the priest.'" For he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth. Then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So, so here's the context. There is abuse of the sacrifices. There's a profaning of the worship of God that is going on here. But it gets worse. Look at verse 22. Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So you, you see the spiritual temperature of the day. Look at verse 25. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. So, so, so these, are, these are men that are meant to be giving light. They're, they're meant to be guiding the people, instructing the hearts of the people, leading them from sin and on to a saving knowledge of their God. And they're doing the complete opposite. So it is a wicked time. This is the day. This is the nation. This is the time in which Hannah is appointed by God to live. And it's important, as we shall see in just a moment. But let's also look at life in the home. As we think of the context of her prayer when she comes at that time that we've read of, what about the home life for her? And she has a husband, Elkanah. He's a godly man. 
And as was the custom among especially those who had money at the time, they may have multiple wives, and he has two wives. And despite this, he continues to be faithful to the Lord, and and Hannah worships with him. Look at verse 3. This man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord in Shiloh. So he's doing this, and, and, and Hannah goes with him. She is worshiping with her husband. And there's a love that exists between them. Look at verse 4. When the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. He loved her. Despite two wives, despite the context of what was often familiar or regular or common at that time, that there's a real love. Like, Elkanah loves Hannah. He truly values and appreciates her. However, Penina does not appreciate. Verse 6 Her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret or grieve because the Lord has shut up her womb. So she is experiencing satanic attack. She experiences an accusation from the other spouse. And I I, I can never get away from the fact, the timing of this. It's as they're going to worship. It's at the point where they're going and their mind is to be focused on worshiping the Lord that she sees fit to just draw attention to the great grief of her heart. You see, Satan's always in the business, not just of abusing and accusing the people of God, but he also likes to time his attacks very carefully in ways when you're about to worship and offer to the Lord, he will come at that point to distract or hinder you in your worship. You think of Acts chapter 16. You think of the woman that was possessed there in Acts 16, the young, the young damsel, and, and, and the, the timing of her attacks upon, upon Paul and the rest, it was as they were going to prayer. It's like as, as they're heading to pray, she comes in and tries to distract. And you will, you will face that, child of God, you will face that. It is on the Lord's Day morning where you're nearly most likely to have some kind of distraction or discouragement. Every morning goes fine through the week. Comes to the Lord's Day morning, the children aren't being, let's say, not making it easy for you to get them out of the house. Maybe you didn't sleep well. Maybe other things are going on. You're busying around and you're distracted and you're upset. And you're, you come into God's house and, you, I mean, any other day of the week you would have been in a better frame of mind than that day. It is not chance. You have an adversary. You have one who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You have one who wants you to enter into an argument on the drive to church. He would love that. So as she goes to worship, the attacks come. Of course, God shutting up her womb was not a judgment. Panina, instead of being humble about the Lord's providence in her life, it fed into her pride. Which is a, it's just a warning to us. Do not be proud of your health, your wealth, or any other perceived favor from the Lord. Blessings of God, which we use to then sin, become a curse 
to us. Any pride associated with external favors indicate a want of grace. Whereas humility associated with external hardships indicates the bloom of grace. And that's what Hannah exhibited. She is a woman of piety, of patience, and humility. That's the context. She is living as a godly woman in an ungodly age, in a difficult set of home circumstances. Some of you may relate. But then let's think of the character of her prayer. Not just the context of it, but the character of her prayer. Hannah doesn't become bitter. We can see this by her response. What's her response? To fight back with Penina? No, it's to bring her burden to the Lord. How many times we fail to do this? We face trials, we face difficulties. What do we do? We want to fight about it. We want to stand our ground. We want to make a scene instead of just just take it to the Lord. A number of things to note about a prayer. First of all, it is specific. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Back in chapter 1. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and wilt not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. It is specific. She, she prays for a specific thing here. She prays for a male child. And that's, of course, what she gets. She prayed very specifically. This, beloved, is a lesson to us. There ought to be specific prayers that we pray. We can pray in generalities all day long, but do you really know when the Lord has answered? Do you? Are there not specific burdens? Yes, there is a there's general praise, general adoration, general committing our ways onto the Lord, but there are there are those things, there are those individual things that we are to pray specifically for. And our Lord would have us come. Our, our Father has taught us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if a son ask bread, will he give him a stone? And there is in that, there is indicating, come and ask for specific things. It's, it's, it's such a blessing to come Wednesday nights, we come and we pray, or any other prayer meeting, instead of just like praying, bless the service. And that's, that's a fine prayer. It's okay in as far as it goes. But isn't it good to get specific, to, to pray, to, to come here and pray, like name our family members? Do you not find it edifying to hear your brothers and your sisters praying for family members that are lost by name? You hear the burden of the heart. It's the specificity. It's not just save people, but it's, it's this person that, that you feel really burdened about. And you're right to mention it. You're right to bring it before the Lord. And I know there are some that are sensitive. There's some persons and circumstances where it wouldn't be appropriate to publicly pray about them. But there are many occasions that are. So let's learn from Hannah. Let's get specific. What blessing here? What blessings do we want? Soul saved? That's a specific prayer. Lord, Lord, save a soul this Lord's day. 
Someone you work with? Lord, bring them into the house of God. Open up a conversation with me today. Like, the, give, give me an opportunity to talk. Let them come to me. Ask me about it. Whatever, whatever the circumstances. Getting specific. Our prayer is not only specific, but our prayer is submissive. And you can see that again in verse 11, where she says, If thou wilt, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt. She knows God is sovereign. She's not dismissive of that. Praying specifically does not undermine the sovereignty of the Lord. And she is willing to put her child, once he is weaned, into the care of Eli. She is going to surrender the child, should the Lord answer her prayer, entirely to, to service in such a way that once weaned, he will no longer be under her direct charge. A man, I might add, who did not have a good track record raising children. Oh, what faith was here. Hannah was not ignorant of Hophni and Phineas. <laughs> she is trusting the Lord. Many of God's greatest servants actually grew up in an ungodly home. Or, let's say, a disadvantaged home. You can look at it. You can look at some of the greatest individuals that have lived. And many of them, many of them had very, very peculiar and difficult circumstances. Because the key is not in the hand of man. We are not to neglect means. We are to raise a godly seed. But ultimately, ultimately, it isn't your faithfulness to duty that will make your children godly. I, I, I underline this, and it needs to, I, I, I underline it because I know your, your heart, like mine, is, has a tendency to lean into pride. It does. Just like mine. We want to believe that what we do makes the difference. And I'm not dismissive of the means God uses means, but I want us always to realize the final outcome of the spiritual condition of our children is in the hands of the Lord. And that's why we pray. So her prayer is submissive. She is submitting to what God would do. She's submitting her son even into the hands of the Lord. But her prayer also is sincere. You read her prayer, verse 11 through 15, you know, and, and the details that follow concerning it and the interaction with Eli. She, she's not wanting a child to boast and brag. That, that's not, it's not to just silence Penina, right? That would be a carnal. This woman is, is she's grieving me, Lord, if you would just give me a child, then that would silence this woman. Of course, would it? Would it actually silence her? Maybe she'd start making comparisons of the number. It's not just her. Okay, yeah, I can't say you're barren anymore, but, but I can say that I have more than you. 
I believe Hannah did not want a child merely to satisfy some want within her own heart, but she wanted a child to offer that child to God. I think something here is undergirding her prayer. It is a knowledge of what God had used in the past, in the circumstances of the nation. Why, why, why does, she, why does she, she, she offers him, look at verse 11 again. I will give him on to the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Do you remember who we dealt with last time? We dealt with Samson. What did God say about Samson? God said, he said this about Samson. Don't drink wine or strong drink. Don't let a razor come upon his head. He'll be a Nazarite from the womb. God said that. Now, now Hannah is saying that. Hannah is praying and saying to God, and if I can get into her heart, this is, this is me trying to get in, get into the scene, trying to, trying to feel the heartbeat of Hannah's prayer. Where's this coming from? I see Hannah reading the darkness of the day and the judges. She's in that day. That's what she's living in. That's the period she's in. And there had come at times in the past these judges that had arisen, and one of the greatest, one of, one of the mightiest was a man by the name of Samson. And Samson was a Nazarite from the womb. And here, here she is coming before the Lord, and she, she's not, God's not saying that this is what he's going to be. She's saying, she's saying, if you give me a son, I will give him voluntarily as a Nazarite from the womb. So I do not believe she's just seeking for a boy to silence Panina, because why then make him a Nazarite? Just pray for a son. There's something more in Hannah's motivation. This is kingdom-minded praying. And I believe she was asking for a boy that would labor for the spiritual need of that day. Her concern is not about having a child, so to silence Panina, her concern is this. If I, if I can get in again to, to her heart in it, Panina's mockery of her is only heightening the spiritual darkness of her day. When, she, when, Heine, when, when Hannah hears what Panina's saying, she, if I can get into her heart, I'm thinking, you, you don't understand. You're, you're, you're making this point about you having children, me not having children. Do you not realize? Do you not realize what's needed today? Do you not realize what's important? These children aren't something to brag on. These children are to be given to the Lord. And the need of our day, the need of our day, is, is for someone to rise up and speak truth, to speak prophetically to the people. If I can see, Hannah's grief isn't over the disparity in terms of children, not children. Hannah's grief is that she feels the spiritual need, and her adversary doesn't. She doesn't see it. She's just gleefully going along thinking children is something for her to brag about and indicate as a favor from God, but she can do whatever she likes with, with them, and they'll just, they'll just grow up and be like all the other children in the land in spiritual darkness. And Hannah's heart is for the Lord. And she reaches breaking point. She gets to breaking point. And she's like, Lord, if you'd only give me a son, I will give him over to you. He will be a Samson. 
He will be a deliverer. I think, I think that's why the other reason, aside from you know, giving him as a Nazarite, which wouldn't be necessary if he was just looking for a child, the other, there are a number of other reasons as well. Look at verse 3 again. When it gives the introduction to Elkanah, and he had two wives, and they go up yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord, it puts sense in, and it's almost parenthetical. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah, over, why is that in there? Later on, they're going to be brought up, and it's going to elaborate on them. This line has no business being there. It appears irrelevant. It's not really relevant to Elkanah's going up to worship the Lord. I mean, it, I mean, it comes becomes relevant, but it's not really. I wouldn't put that there, except for one reason. That their presence is influencing someone when they go there. That someone is Hannah. As she goes up yearly, she is seeing these wretches. That's what, that's what the record is telling us. She, she, they're going there to worship yearly, and these wicked sons, it's kind of like the writer saying, we'll get to them in just a moment, but just be aware that they're there at that time. Every year they go up, these wicked sons of Eli are there. And Hannah sees it. And it's put there then as a motivating factor in relation to how she prayed. We need someone dedicated to the Lord. If our hands, if our nation is in the hands of Eli's sons, we're doomed. I think, in addition, just building the argument here as to her main motivation. In verse 8, when Elkanah sees her sorrow and her weeping, why eatest thou not? Why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Just step back a minute. <laughs> Taken at face value as if this had never been discussed before, this seems a very insensitive thing to say. It's like, Elkanah doesn't understand the sorrow of a woman that knows herself to be barren. It's insensitive. Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Who says that? Who says that? The only way this makes sense is if at some point Hannah had actually said to him, you're better to me than ten sons. Then it makes sense. Then he's saying back to her, is this not what you said? Why is it grieving you now? It seemed like Hannah had come to terms with her barrenness at some point in the past. That she accepted the fact that God had shut up her womb and she was content with it. Elkanah's confusion is by this resurrected concern this problem, this worry that is gripping her and bringing her to tears and to fasting, and he doesn't understand. Again, I, agree with me or not, but I, I'm trying to get in and see. You wouldn't just say that to your wife. 
I'm not I better to thee than ten sons. That seems to be something that come from her. And his confusion then is, why have what's changed? What has changed? What had changed again was the pressing sense of the darkness of the day, and no one seems to care. That's that's what changed. Which brings us then thirdly to consider the consequence of her prayer. What happens when she prays? She prays for a son. Well, she gets an answer in verse 19. They rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It's such a delightful expression of answered prayer, isn't it? Not just the Lord answered her prayer. The Lord remembered her. It's good to come and pray, Lord, remember us. Remember us. It's not, it's not in conflict with the omniscience of God. Like God knows all things. And yet we, we say, Lord, show, show that you know. Evidence to my heart that you know. David prays, show me a token for good. Make it visible, tangible. The Lord remembered her. Yes, we, we want to be remembered, don't we? It's, 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 a, it's a covenant expectation to be remembered. When the children of Israel cried amidst their slavery, what does it tell us in Exodus? It tells us that they cried and the Lord remembered. He remembered. Remembered his covenant. Remembered what he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the, think of the, the dying thief. What does he say? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Remember me. And he does. He remembers. He, he, he has promised. How blessed it is to, to be remembered before the Lord. Ah, to be, to be remembered sands the sins that should bring judgment. <laughs> That's the blessing. To such that are remembered in this merciful way, their sins and their iniquities, the Bible says, God will remember no more. Ah, to remember me in mercy and know that my sins were placed on Christ. So she gets an answer. The Lord remembered her. She shows appreciation. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We'll take time to, to read these verses again and uh, walk through these verses as she shows her appreciation. This, this is wonderful. This, this prayer is great. When you pray for something, God answers. Make sure to follow up the way Hannah does here. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my en mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of mighty men are broken, 
And they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. And they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven. And she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of His saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall He thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and He shall give strength unto His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. What a prayer. What a prayer. And it's full of appreciation. We've come to the week of Thanksgiving. Note how she is not so focused on the gift as she is upon the giver. Note how her heart is toward the Lord, not toward what she has received in answer to prayer. Note that. Note it well. Underline it. And let that be your delight in thanksgiving. Because God gives and He takes away. But He remains the God of His people. He will be our God. He will be our God forever and ever. This God is our God and He will be our guide even unto death. That's what remains the same. And she is expressing delight There's lots to consider here, but I can't take time to deal with it. But this is mature praise. This is mature praise. She she is seeing here in the answer to her prayer that the Lord has felt the motivation of her heart. She talks here about enemies and all the rest. Why is she thinking about that? She's thinking about it because God, God knew the motivation of my heart. The motivation of my heart was a child to to wreak havoc against the enemies of God and to bring deliverance to His people. Therefore, if that was the motivation of my prayer and He answered that prayer, then He intends to fulfill that desire of the soul. The desire is not for a child. The child is a means to the end to bring deliverance. That, of course, is what happens. Samuel grows up as a man of God. And he, oh, what a heart he had for his nation. And she expresses anticipation. Look at the anticipation here. Not just her answer, her appreciation, but her anticipation. Again, verse 10. What she say? He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Consider carefully. Consider carefully. What do we say about the context? Does Israel have a king? No, no, not, not like they will have. Not like Saul and David and so on. So they are, their king right now is the Lord. Which, again, anyone asks you, can I put it as a trick question, who was the first king of Israel? God. God was the first king of Israel. Right? Because whenever they come and Samuel thinks that they're rejecting him, the Lord says to Samuel, no, they've rejected me from being king of them. They've rejected me. So they want a king like the other nations, but that's a side point. But think of the context then. She is 
He shall give strength unto his king. What king? And exalt the horn of his anointed. Oh, if you could read, if you could just read the, the Hebrew here at the end of verse 10. Exalt the horn of his Messiah. It's the first mention of the word Messiah in the Old Testament. First mention. An indication of Messiah, seed of the woman, all the rest, all the, all the, all the prophetic words up to this point are pointing to a deliverer. But this is the first use of an anointed one. And so she has, she has a wonderful anticipation and spiritual insight as to how deliverance will come. Deliverance comes how? The seed of a woman. The seed of the woman. And so she's praying for a man-child. She's seeing that that's necessary because deliverance comes through someone set apart to God. That's how... That's this. See, this woman is filled with Scripture. <laughs> if you could just get into this. This is not... Don't see this as some kind of vain prayer for a son. This is a woman who's... who's whose soul is filled with the promises of God and deliverance by the seed of the woman. And her mind then is filled with Scripture and she's seeing the state of the day and the condition of the day in her, her heart. Lord, did you not promise the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent? Did you not promise? Deliverance would come through the one that you promised, the one that will be greater than Moses. And so in a way, she is, she's praying for a son in the understanding that there will be this final deliverance, like Samuel is, is, is an indication of the future promise of Jesus Christ himself. Really, that's what she's praying for. She's praying for what Christ would finally bring to pass. Full deliverance through the anointed one. Samuel's going to point to him. He's going to point to him. He, he will fulfill some of the roles and some of the aspects of of Messiah's role. But you see her prayer. Give strength to your anointed one. What spiritual insight. <laughs> These are the kind of women that change the course of history. Not because they're made presidents, not because they have great positions and roles in society, because there, behind the scenes, they are praying in a way that shapes the very course of the generation. Ordinary people who know God and sense the dark spiritual condition of the day and understand deliverance can only come from the Lord, and they spend their time weeping and sobbing and crying and longing that the Lord the Lord would bring deliverance. As we close, therefore, Hannah is an example to us all of the ministry, the profound ministry that can be exercised without holding any official office. She's not a priest. She's not a prophet. She's not a judge. She's not a king. But she can discern the darkness of the day and the darkness and the desire for the glory of her God 
triggers in her a burden that cannot be satisfied until she gets what she longs for. She is a woman of discernment, surrounded by religious leaders who are out of touch with God. Thank God for the woman folk who know God. For mothers who pray. For wives who seek God. How does the future look to you today? Are you filled with hope? Are there great characters abroad that you look at and say, our our nation is in good hands? (laughs) We are where Hannah was. What's the answer? A protest outside the tabernacle? (laughs) Eli's son's out. Eli's son's out, you know. God would take care of them. There's something more important than just their removal. It's who comes into the gap. There's a need for Samuels. Oh, may you mothers be given grace. To raise your children prayerfully. Maybe like Hannah, you'll see your own children do remarkable things. Or maybe, maybe it will be their children. Maybe you're preparing them for how they will raise their children and the one that will make the difference comes two generations away. I don't know. Far too many of us are like Panina. She represents the Christian with all the privileges, all the outward favor. She's like the average American who has received all this spiritual heritage and benefit to her, but she has absolutely no spiritual vision. If only we could quantify. Let me close with this. Let me just pull us all together. Remember we come to the New Testament? There's a woman who's, who's named after this woman. She's called Anna. And she departed not from the temple night and day. And she prayed and she fasted. It's like she was given this name and she wants to live it out. And she is beseeching for deliverance in her day too. 
She's found that every season of prayer, she has her own appointments with God. She is waiting before God. She's praying, she's praying, she's praying. And she actually sees. She sees the one that Hannah pointed to at the end of her prayer. Exalt the horn of your anointed. She sees it with her own eyes. Jesus Christ, born in her day. What a blessing. May the Lord mercifully give us a heart like this dear woman. Let's pray. Christian, don't lament what you can't do. Engage in what you can. You can't kick presidents out of office. And there are many things that you're limited in doing. But don't waste your energy on what you can't do. Give your energy to what you can. Wherever you are, be all there, as Elliot said. God, we pray for grace. We are mesmerized by the grand and the wonderful. Help us to see the value in the quiet faithfulness of a surrendered life that's very much behind the scenes. This is where most of us are. Lord, we place our lives at Thy disposal. Put ourselves and our children in Thy hands. And we beg Thee, forgive our sins. Heal our backslidings and do as thou hast done in the past. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven forgive their sin and heal their land. Answer prayer. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of all thy people now and evermore. Amen.